Welcome to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast with your hosts, Shari Lyon and Nicola Lay. Together, we bring over 30 years of experience in working with women and partners through education, breathing, mindfulness, and evidence-based information, and nurturing you through this transformation into motherhood. Join us on this journey as we connect with women and partners, mentoring, supporting, and navigating the ups and downs of becoming parents. Welcome to episode nine, where Shari and myself are interviewing the beautiful Ginny Fang. 16 years ago, when Ginny found her inner calling, her inner voice through one of the most challenging times of her life, she found herself as a doula. With passion and desire to serve expectant parents in her home in Singapore, as well as now traveling around the world as a mentor to teach health professionals and birth workers. So Ginny's vision is to empower women and their families to have the birth that they desire and supporting them through early parenthood. Ginny is currently working towards opening Singapore's first birth center. This is just the most amazing interview today. We thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Ginny. But what you'll find is some of the volume during this audio will dip in and out because Ginny was showing us visually the most amazing movement techniques that she was trying to discuss for opening the pelvis for birth. So if you want to understand and learn more from what she was showing us, please head over to the link at the bottom of the show notes where you will find the link to our Nurture Hub community. You just come on into there and join our community and you'll be able to see the visual of this Zoom as well as hear the audio. So enjoy, sit back and wow, we could have talked to Ginny for hours. Hi, Ginny. So lovely to have you on here and welcome to our episode nine. Can't wait to talk to you today and hear all the things that you have to share with us. Thank you very much for having me online. You're welcome. You're Mm. welcome. So would you mind just starting off just sharing? um, I know your journey has been an amazing journey, um, but sharing like what brought you into supporting women, being a doula, and now teaching either, you know, other practitioners and midwives how to help women during labor and birth through your optimal maternal positioning workshops. The journey started about 20 years ago when I found myself pregnant as an unwed mother and coming from Singapore, which is a predominantly um, overseas Chinese community. It is something that's uh, quite shameful to be pregnant out of wedlock. And so I had to make the decision whether to go for an abortion and continue living with my parents, which is the norm here because it's so expensive. You don't live on your own until you actually get married. And we don't have welfare in this country. So you're quite dependent on being able to be financially uh, independent. And this being such an expensive country, top 10 most expensive cities in the world, it's almost quite difficult to live on your own unless you have really, uh, uh, you're financially stable at a very young age, which is not very common. <laughs> so, um, so I was given an ultimatum to um, go for an abortion and continue living at home. Or if I choose to keep the pregnancy, I got to get out of the house and just figure it out. And um, so everything in my head was saying like, oh, you're still young. I was still studying and not sure what I wanted to do. 
um, and, you know, just trying to figure it out, right? But yet everything in my heart felt like it was so wrong to go for an abortion. And having a company, um, some friends go through the abortion process before, I always knew that if it ever happened, I would keep this child. But yet I was on that road to going for an abortion. So the night before the abortion process where I had to take misoprostol to start the whole um, dilation, I actually, you know, I was just praying and and really just feeling like this is not what I want to do. And then I had all the signs in the universe just come in like last minute, banging through my door going like, oh, flush the pills down, we'll figure it out and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I did. So I, I had to find a way and to make it work. So I got off the house. I found a job, a part-time, full-time part-time job kind of thing and just tried to make things work. And I had to find a place to stay. So I was moving around a little bit um, because staying with friends here is not very common because they live with oh. their family. So, oh, so yeah. hopping from one family to another and definitely renting was out of the question because I was just working and it was quite a lowly paid uh, job. So um, that's what I did, just basically going through the whole pregnancy, which was quite a dark period for me. And then mm-hmm. coming out on the other side, because through the pregnancy, I was thinking if I should give the child up for an adoption, not knowing whether I'll be able to look after him myself. But only three weeks uh, towards the end of the pregnancy before I gave birth, then I came to the decision and said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Like, we'll just yeah. have to figure it out. And that was the only time where I would say I truly enjoyed my pregnancy because all the other nights were just like crying every night kind of thing. Like, it felt so right, but yet it felt so, it seemed so wrong kind of thing. Um, so when I got, when I had my baby, it was uh, an okay birth, not what I wanted, but not overly traumatic either but you know it wasn't what I was focused on I was just focusing on surviving and focusing on just being and and getting by and I think it was the journey of um, breastfeeding that was very empowering and the journey of becoming a mother so I only intended to breastfeed for a month and one month became two months two months became six months six months became a year one year became two years and he ended up feeding for six and a half years wow (laughs) (laughs) and through The six and a half years in a small place like Singapore, um, you know, everything was online, right? Because I couldn't go out. I was working a full-time job. I was isolated because all my friends at my age were still partying. So they couldn't relate to me. So I had to look for a new community. So I started seeking out the online communities. And during that time, you're talking about like 20 years ago, right? 19 years ago. This is like (laughs) Yahoo groups, you know, so (laughs) Dial up. Dial up. So yeah, in like Yahoo groups, making friends with these people, like, you know, everyone's up in the middle of the night feeding. And I was just like, welcome into this uh, underground world of breastfeeding mothers. And I remember attending my first support group and my son must have been around six months at that time, right? And I saw a two-year-old feeding and I was shocked because it's not something I've ever seen. And I'm going like, wow, this child is pretty big. (laughs) (laughs) Feeding, you know, and it just blew my mind. So I was hanging out with people like that, right? Feeding at two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. And they kind of, and I didn't know then, but of course now it's so natural, right? When you are into breastfeeding, you're mostly also into better birding choices, whether it's natural Mm -hmm. or not, but you are, you know, it's just as important. 
So I got brought into that underground network of like, ooh, a natural birth and this and that, which was all new for me, right? So the friend who was feeding her two and a half year old, she lives in Canberra anyway. <laughs> she was living in Singapore. And she was feeding her two and a half year old. And one day she just said to me, we became really good friends. I started an online shop because my work was all right, but I wasn't passionate about it. Mm. And I was just looking for something to do. I've always been quite a passionate person. So I started an online shop, started the first few breastfeeding calendars in Singapore, um, took, got, you know, community people to take photos and featuring to, you know, just educate the public about breastfeeding. And that's how I basically started. So one day she turned to me, she's like, you know, you're so passionate about this. You're going to make such a great doula. And I'm like, what? You know, she's like, go take the course, you know, like just, and and I've always been about personal development. Like how can we live better? How can we be better? Right. So I said, out of curiosity, I said, you know what, you know, let's check it out. So I took an online education and I rocked up at my first birth, which was another mother within the community. So during those times, right. I would drag my son with me for every prenatal. So I worked from Monday to Fridays, like an office job. And then on uh, Saturdays and Sundays, I would have prenatals with these clients. And these people were all within the same community. Breastfeeding mothers had, you know, really like not good birth experiences, cesareans, and everyone just wanting to reclaim themselves Mm. kind of thing. So they were all okay with having kids because our kids play together. Or we have a home, we even had like a homeschooling co-op. So it was really supporting all the mothers kind of stuff, right? So that's how it started. So I remember rocking up at the first birth of a friend. And she was expecting her fourth child. And I remember standing in front of the hospital going like, I have no idea what to do. I don't know how to do at my birth. You know, like, no idea what to do. Uh, and so, you know, I just went in, like, put all your fears aside and just went in and did it. And I remember coming out of the hospital going like, wow, I felt like I was stepping into a pair of old shoes. Wow. I'm like, I could really do this. So I was having a full-time job and my boss had no idea what I was doing and I was moonlighting <laughs> on the side. And nights where like I'll be attending a birth and then coming home for a quick shower and then going straight to um, the office and not sleeping. Mm. And I was the first local doula in Singapore. So, and, you know, just being very passionate about it. I talked a lot about it and just started working with women. I was hungry. I did anything and everything, whether I got paid, whether it was free. I just took on what I can because mm-hmm. I was very young. Then I was in my early 20s. So whenever I rocked up to a house and, and worked with women, right, and then their, their parents are around or the grandparents are around, they expected to see someone in their 50s. Yeah. And then comes me with this young child in hand, right? And they were like, and then, you know, this is a very uh, uh, Singaporean, they're very blunt. They're like, oh, you're so young. We expect this. <laughs> <laughs> and they say things like that, you know. So I was like hungry and not angry, but like, oh, I better make it up with uh, experience, right? And I would do anything and everything, you know, just like really hungry and wanted to learn. And that's how I started. So within two to three years of doing this, from having one client every three months, I was getting six to 10 clients a month. Wow, that's great. And and I had to keep taking urgently from work. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was also the first uh, unwed mother in Singapore that came out in the papers to talk about being unwed. So during that time, we also started the first uh, support group for unwed mothers, which is completely just 
not talked about because it's so shameful in this society. Um, and when we started coming into the open, we meaning me and another unwed mom, just the two of us, but she works for the paper, so she couldn't come out into the public, right? So it's just me as the teacher <laughs> kind of thing. And we attracted an underground group of 500 over women. Wow. That oh. They're also not married mm. and all that kind of stuff, right? And it was just this, like, the birth of my son came, was like the birth of me trying to find my voice. Yes, and it was yes. the modality of, right, like, mm. where do I find my voice? So it started with motherhood and expression of motherhood, which is breastfeeding, which then brought it back to birth because it affects breastfeeding to a certain degree. Mm. And also as an unwed mom. And, and however, like, you know, choosing, you could always, there are many ways to express yourself, right? Some people work in shelters, some people do this or, or whatever, but somehow I found it in childbirth. Even though I didn't experience it, like I didn't have a doula at my birth, I didn't have great support at my birth, mm. that sort of thing. But the lack of was like, oh, I can see why people actually need someone or need help. So that's that's basically how it started. It's like I need trying to find my own voice. In trying to find my own voice, I found the voices for other people. And Beautiful. and that's where until today, you know, like I could have never expected like 20 years ago, wow. this would happen where I started as the first local doula and then, you know, got caught up. I appeared on the newspaper and I took up like one quarter of the newspaper, right? They put like this huge picture. <laughs> and that was when I realized, oh shoot, my boss is going to find out now. <laughs> the national paper. There was no way I could get away from this, right? Mm. And true enough, so we had the conversation and where I had to choose. And it was a no-brainer. I was like, I'm going to yeah. leave after. You know, I'm very thankful for what he did for me and how he supported me. And his wife was always like, you know, collecting things and, and getting them for me through the, the children's schools and things like that. But it was just time to start a new chapter. Mm. Yeah. And so I did. So financially, not that I was earning a lot of money. I was earning so little money. I think back now and I go like, how did I survive? It's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but I did it. But, um, you know, I look back now and I go like, wow, it's, it's, it's been a long um, journey. I mean, what I love from this, I just hear the power in that vulnerability, you know, standing into all the things that are just so beautiful and feminine and just mm. really being the lead, like standing and shining the light. It's so beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, so that's how I got into childbirth, just wow. finding, finding a voice and really just working with, so I started out with a lot of VBAC women. Um, that was the crowd that I was attracting and second time parents, of course. And, um, and probably because I was the only local doula and I was just uh, gutsy about the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just yeah. did it really passionately. So it didn't take long, like within two to three years of doing it, I, I had a, quite a huge following. So up till today, you know, when it comes to social media and everything, I'm very low-key. I just, I always have this thing where I just do my own thing, you know, with, yeah. with I, I feel like I'm in a hermit shell. It's just that my shell is pretty big. And I <laughs> like what I'm doing kind of thing. And then like not, not worrying about what's happening around me and then just like keep going that way. So it's really nice to know that like, you know, 10 years ago, I had a friend give birth in my house 
and she was she's a midwife herself and she has her own birth center in Bali and then oh. she came to Singapore to give birth because she didn't trust the medical system and her child had some complications so she just wanted to be in Singapore in case they do need to transfer mm. so I remember like when she gave birth in my garden and she had a water birth and, and her kids were plucking flowers off my garden and throwing it into the water wow. <laughs> and it was hilarious because like um there were people like mowing the lawn so you could hear like <laughs> all that sounds and then like nobody had any idea that there's a woman in labor in the backyard in the garden kind of thing and and she was laboring and all most of the kids were there and they're like sprinkling flowers and we're just all gathered around her right and I was like wow how cool it would be to have people come to my house to give birth Mm -hmm. and seven years later people started I moved in order to accommodate accommodate people to start coming to my house to give birth, right? Uh-huh. And one of my aspirations is to actually open Singapore's first birth center. And we're actually in the preliminary stages of doing that. So if everything goes as planned, we're talking about by end of next year or into 2022, we would have this already launched if everything goes as planned and scheduled so you know every time I think back about it right <laughs> I think back about a person who is pregnant and going like I don't know what am I gonna do wow it's that actually amazing yeah that it's actually amazing. you know I kind of like you know you, you heard of like you hear of earth angels you're like a birth angel you are like <laughs> you the know birth you, angel. you've been sent here for and I truly believe you know, and we've talked about this on our, mm. on past episodes in regards to our own experiences as well that have brought us in, into alignment, into this work, because we are just, you know, all driven to, to be like, women need to know the power that they have within them, but they just need to know how. And, mm. and that's something that I feel like I've even truly learned more from you and attending your, your workshops that now you offer, um, to learn and it just all makes sense this is what's amazing Mm. like you just like I remember just being in your workshop and your OMP workshop and just being like that like oh my gosh like why is that not explained to us again from medical caregivers but do you know what I don't think the medical caregivers even know this stuff because they're not taught Mm. taught this so like now where you're at with um you've started an association haven't you iBirth professionals over there Uh and is that right? Um, iBirth Professionals is a private company that's actually registered in Australia. So what we've done was everything used to be operating under my Singapore company for trimesters. So oh. we went through a uh, separation where we, um, I feel like it's my nine, it's like my 19 year old, you know, it's like, hey, come on, time to grow up and <laughs> stand on your own too feet kind of thing so the separation is a good separation it's not a bad separation where four trimesters is our consumer business where we work directly with uh, pregnant people and then iBirth Professionals has become the professional arm or the educational arm to work with uh, professionals and then we have an association in Singapore yeah right and now and now you teach other midwives and other uh, practitioners the yeah. work that that you do beautiful um so I guess one of the main questions and the, the thing that I've learned from you at your workshops is about creating space for our babies mm. could you just explain like to mums like what what does that mean and mm. how to understand their bodies 
and how we are designed to birth, but how we need to be able to work with our bodies to create the space for our babies to, to be born. Sure. So having a baby go through a pelvis is like putting a key through the keyhole. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like if you come home drunk in the middle of the night and it's dark and you jam the key in the wrong way, no matter what you do, this door is not going to open. So the focus all these years in childbirth has been trying to get the key in the right direction. But the thing is, you can't control to a certain degree what position this key is going to be. You can talk to your baby, you can do certain exercises, etc. But there's only so much that you can do. So instead of putting the focus on the key, we're putting the focus on the keyhole, which is the mother, the pelvic cavity and what we can do to create space. So, you know, we often talk about, oh, babies have to be in left occiput anterior. That's the right optimum position. Mm -hmm. And that's actually an irony because research shows that 50 to 60% of the time, labor starts with a baby in LOT, left occiput transverse. So there's a lot of emphasis when you go for like prenatal classes, yoga classes, exercise classes, antenatal classes, where they say, get your baby in that grade position but what do you how do we know that this is a great position where we don't know what kind of keyhole the Mm. mother has so we assume that more than 50 percent of women in this entire population would favor a certain position but not all women so a lot of the focus that we do is giving the power back to the mothers to be more proactive in doing what they can to prepare the body for birthing and trusting that in in choosing how they spend their day, how they sit, how they stand, how they walk, the exercises that they do, that itself will influence the position of the baby. And not so much you have a baby that goes, nah, I'm going to make things difficult for you. And be <laughs> position. Babies don't do that. They don't know that. They just go into the space available for them. So the question then throws it back to us is, what can we do to create space for the baby? So that's what we're mostly uh, um, empowering mothers to do. And one of the things where like, we have very good outcomes for it because we choose to work, um, when we work with clients, they have to attend our antenatal classes, whether they do it through group or they do it privately. And this becomes part of the education. So out of uh, an average of 100 clients a year as a group practice, right, we have only about one or two cesareans a year. Wow. And, and that is quite unheard of. And the reason why it's unheard of partly is because we have a good care provider that we work with that gives women time, but also because we're very proactive during pregnancy with the women, very proactive during labor and birth. And when we do end up with a cesarean, um, having supported them through as a doula and everything, most of the time it's a medical condition like placenta uh, previa or or placenta eruption and things like Mm. that that causes a cesarean. Very rarely we'll have a situation where the baby can't fit through the pelvis. Not that it doesn't happen, but I think over the past five years, we probably only had one or two. Everyone else made it through. So, you know, a lot more can definitely be done to work with women, to empower women to know what to do. Yeah, but I think we need to also 
be able to teach this to the obstetricians and the midwives because they're the ones telling these women that your baby's too Too big, big. it's not going Mm. to fit in your pelvis, let's just book a cesarean. Um, you know, shoulder dystocia. And yes, there are risks. We, we're not mm. um, saying that they're not, but I think from what, and again, we us working with women and just hearing even the lack of education that the caregivers have on how a woman's anatomy is and how a woman is designed to birth and how we are designed to open up through pelvic mobility as I've, I've learned from mm. you. And um, I just, you know, wish that doctors would stop putting women on their backs on the bed you know it's but it's still happening um and I'm just again I've just um there was in a group actually that I was in this this mum has just been totally bullied by an obstetrician to induce at 39 weeks because her baby's measuring in the something whatever percentile and telling her that you know well as that this baby will come out with shoulder dystocia and telling her she's going to rip from one end to the other. And I'm just like reading this post, just going like, this is just such fear. But it's it's more like, is it more fear from the doctor though? I don't know. Like it's, that's um, one of the reasons why we are so successful is because we don't work alone. So Mm. if you look at, um, I was just reading the, uh, the book, the birth house. And this book has been published years ago, but I haven't gotten around to reading it, right? So in one of my midwifery groups, they were like, okay, you know, uh, pick up that book and read it. And and so I just indulged one night and read the whole book in one sitting. (laughs) And it's not the only book. Like you read a lot of books written by midwives, et cetera. You find that it's been a long history. Women or midwives has always been known as the witch, right? They burn the midwives. (laughs) Yes, yeah. There's always been that divide. And it was funny because um, when I was reading the book, The Birth House, it brought me back to my apprentice midwifery with the Amish community. You know, so I could so relate to the book, even though it was written in the early 90s or, you know, written in the time of the early 90s. You know, being with the Amish community definitely felt like you were in the early 90s kind of thing and how it gave birth and how everything was so natural and and things and it was the story of how the obstetrics was trying to come in and putting making things sterile and no matter where I go into the world the furthest I've been to teach was Brazil is you always have this divide and you always have this fight OBs against midwives and Mm. and midwives against doulas and there's always this fight right and that's something that doesn't work in our culture so Singapore is quite a pure culture that way. It's, it's, you can 90% of the time or more, if you drop your mobile phone in a taxi, you're going to get your mobile phone back. If you walk away from a cash machine and you leave your cash there, someone's going to run after you and pass you wow. the cash. Okay. So, so it's, this is the kind of community that we're in. It's quite an honest uh, and compliant community that way. Mm. So because this is the the culture of this place, it is also very important for teamwork to actually happen. It's fighting is not a very acceptable way of being and it doesn't really work. 
So over here, we have no choice. If we want things to work, we got to work well with the doctors and we don't have midwifery care in Singapore. So even though you have midwives, they operate like um, obstetric nurses. So right. you have to work well with the nurses. Otherwise, they're also very old school that way. If you're not happy here, get out. You know, <laughs> They throw you out of the room kind of thing. It's not a case of human rights or anything like that. So it is a prerequisite to be able to work well. But that's where over the years, um, the only reason why I can be so successful in what I do with women is because I've got supportive people around. And you're talking about pediatricians, doctors, uh, nurses that I've worked with in various hospitals to start water birthing or getting women to birth off the bed and introducing it at hospitals. It's all about just building relationships and and watching each other's back, making sure that they don't compromise what they're doing. Certain things we don't agree with, but you got to compromise in order to make sure that they're seen as doing their jobs and, and things like that. So I think one of them, part of the thing, I the way I see it from a Singaporean's perspective is there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of work harmony and the value of teamwork. Because at the moment, a lot of it, like no matter where I go to teach in Australia, it's always about fighting fighting yeah. against somebody else oh. kind of thing. Mm. So I think that's that's really the big uh, difference. Yeah, where we're really feeling that as well. And that's where, you know, Nicola and I coming together, we actually have a really beautiful little network that we have created here um, of practitioners where we all, and we, we really do find that when a woman works with with all of us in our own different you know expertise and how we can support she feels supported yeah. and is also then able to advocate for herself and um, her safe. partner as well yeah. and feel safe and mm. we really have found that yeah when we really do work together that it is you know for the mother as well that the outcomes are so much better mm. um so yeah. yeah that that's beautiful so in regards to just going back to, I guess, that question of that key in the keyhole, right? <laughs> what can what can women do to help themselves during pregnancy and yeah, labor, especially labor, because we're we and this is where we kind of want to talk about, I guess, breach and posterior. Yeah, we're seeing a lot. I see a lot of posterior laying babies at the moment. Mm. Why do you think babies are maybe getting into that posterior position, or what have you seen working with women as a as a doula and supporting women throughout their pregnancy mm. that is maybe causing these babies to get into these positions and it's making it then really hard for them to move during labour to get into a position that they can birth themselves. This is very similar to the concept of movement versus exercise, right? Mm. So now you, if you see like there's a new trend in exercise where they go into like you're not actually really exercising, the exercises that we want to do is to enhance your mobility and you need to enhance your mobility because of how you choose to do things through the day. So they go, they call it, I mean, there are different names for, for it, right? Functional movement whatsoever. So, it, and the concept really is no matter how much exercises you do, right? Say you do a yoga uh, stretch. I'm not saying it's not good. It's great. But that's like half an hour to an hour out of a 24-hour period. And how many women, pregnant women, would devote one hour to yoga every day? Unless they're really a yogi, that's not going to happen. Not enough. You know, if you're lucky once a week, 
you know, if you're very lucky, a couple of times a week kind of thing. But most of the time, you're talking about an average of once a week. So if you calculate that an hour in a week, that's not a lot of time. But what is she doing for the rest of the time? So the focus that we want to do is on movement. How does she move through the day? So what is she doing? What is her lifestyle? Is she someone who's on her feet or is she someone who's sitting? Most of us are sitting, right? So you could do the simple things like, so right now I'm sitting and I'm sitting on a stool, but in my on my stool, I have a little ball, right? That's slightly inflated with air. So even though this is like a designer stool that shapes to my bum, <laughs> it's still not good enough, right? When you put something like this with a bit of air, what happens is if I'm sitting on the stool, I'm trying to move, I got to move my entire body to be able to move my pelvis. But the moment I sit on a ball with a bit of air, all of a sudden I'm sitting as if I'm sitting on a gym ball without being on a gym ball. Only because it's not practical to be carrying a gym ball everywhere you go. And think, so if a woman's going to be sitting a lot because of the nature of her work, something simple like that can be really helpful because what it does is that the air in the ball, just a little bit of air, takes the pressure off the sacrum. So yeah, continuously, it forces you to sit up. It's very hard to slouch and sit yeah. on this. It forces you to sit up. It spontaneously makes you want to rock or move a little bit over time and take the distribution of kind of thing. So those are simple things that they can do. And a lot of people, when they sit, when it comes to a sofa setting, you'll see that it's very common where when they sit, they'll sit, put the legs up, and then they tilt, and then they slouch the entire pelvis. Yes. This is one of the main causes for posterior babies because the head mm-hmm. and the spine is the heaviest part. And the moment they slouch the pelvis, the baby has no choice but to follow gravity and turn and rotate. So when they sit, we're not saying you cannot lean back, but when you're sitting, what you want to do is you want to feel like you're sitting on your sit bones and you want to be able to pivot backwards and forward, but as if your bum is glued to the seat. Rather than you sit, lean back, and then you tilt and slouch your entire pelvis, which encourages the baby to go into posterior. Yeah. So because like, and we see the difference um, because we don't have midwifery care in Singapore. So we have obstetric care and obstetric care and mostly private care. It means that they get an ultrasound scan at every visit unless they decline. And very few people will decline because yeah. they're excited to see their babies. <laughs> so we actually get to track the baby's position in at every visit. And that's something I pay attention to in the third trimester since I'm going to get the information anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting when you have babies continuously in LOT, LOT, LOA, LOT. And then one day they turn to LOP where the baby's in posterior. And the first question I would usually ask is, did you start your maternity leave? And they go, <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> I said, well, there must have been something that changed. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I sit down and I relax more often and mm. this and that. I was like, it's great that you start your maternity leave, but you still need to sit better, be upright, you know, move a bit more, go for walks and everything. Right. And it's very interesting where within a week or two of doing that, together with other exercises that we teach them, 
the babies go back into a position that's better for mother. So I try to look at, I'm not saying that uh, anterior position is the best position for every woman because we don't know what her keyhole is going to be. But what I try to look at is patterns. What pattern is this baby in? Then I get a pattern where it's consistently posterior through the pregnancy, right? So it's always posterior. No matter what we do, it's posterior. Then I take it that this mother probably has a pelvis that would favor a posterior baby that's causing this baby to continuously be in posterior. So when that happens, I don't want to change the formula because if her pelvis is one that favors a posterior labor, this baby's not going to come out in anterior anyway. Right. So those, those are things that I look at. And then the other trend that I see is the swimmer. The swimmer means like every visit is a different position because sometimes <laughs> they have a lot of amniotic fluid and then the yeah. baby's smaller or whatever it is. So if the mother's on the left, it goes on the left. If the mother's on the right, it goes on the right. And this baby's just continuously swimming. Then I take note also because I expect this swimmer to start swimming during labor. And that's when positioning during labor is really, really important because the moment she leans back or whatever, this baby's going to swim. And, yeah. and even that if they swim in in posterior and that's not the position that they are usually or should be in, then we might have a longer labor. Can the placenta have um, an effect on positioning of baby as well? That's something that I also get asked. You know, if your placenta is anterior and mm. it's on the front wall, baby may not be able to or doesn't favor that. Um, sure, but the problem is there are too many variables. It's mm -hmm. a bit, it's the same thing with breach. Why unbreached babies turning down, right? So the first question I always ask is, are there any physical obstructions in the way? Is, are there fibroids? Are there cysts? Yeah. Is the placenta anterior or posterior? And then the thing we can't tell is the length of the umbilical cord. Yeah. So are there actually physical obstructions getting in the way or the shape of the uterus? So this would be usually the first question that I would want to know. And then if it's not, then I take it to the next step where I go, well, it sounds like something is twisted there. So what do I mean by that? So this is the analogy that, or the metaphor that I always use with the hot air balloon where the balloon represents the uterus, the basket represents the pelvis, and something women don't think about, right? Which is how does the uterus actually attach itself to the pelvis? Mm -hmm. So it attaches through soft tissues, which is represented by muscles, ligaments, and fascia. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's represented by the ropes that connects the balloon to the basket. So just as when you see a hot air balloon go up, it's very symmetrical, it moves around, it's very symmetrical. When you look at it from a microscopic point of view, it is continuously doing this. It's doing its best to maintain dynamic equilibrium. Mm. It's never really in equilibrium, right? Now, what's really important is as the baby is going through the pelvis, like putting a key through the keyhole, it needs a straightforward route in the keyhole. If someone tried to jam through the keyhole in one way or another or break in, it's the right key, but no matter what you do, the key is not going to go mm -hmm. through. So in the same way, the baby spontaneously knows what to do to go through its rotation, which is called cardinal movements. But if the route is twisted, 
then the baby's going to have a hard time coming through. But when a woman is pregnant, between 30 to 32 weeks, gravity should take over to help this baby go into a head down position. And every birth culture has a different take. So when you go to UK, we go to Australia, they go, nah, don't worry about breech babies until 36 weeks. We don't do that over here. By 30 to 32 weeks, like my threshold is at 32. Mm. Why isn't gravity taking Yes. And that's where if it's not a physical obstruction or the shape of the uterus, then chances are it's because the hot air balloon is twisted. It could be most of the twisting is in the lower uterine segment. So it could be here, it could be a little bit of here, it could be that her hips are imbalanced. So if one side of her pelvis is higher than the other side, then the soft tissue is going to pull the pelvis up. But in order to maintain the changing center of gravity every day, this hot air balloon would have to tip in order to maintain the center of gravity. So when that happens, straight away, it can be slanted, it can be twisted. So the focus that we want to do is what can we do to get this hot air balloon to untwist? And that is where with optimal maternal uh, positioning, we teach them a set of exercises. So the first set of exercises works with the soft tissues to work on untwisting and getting the hot air balloon into dynamic equilibrium. And this is what we call the pelvic alignment protocols. And think of it like a daily stretch. That's going to take 10 to 20 minutes every day because you don't know how you've been moving and and whatever, Mm. but you're just going to stretch it out to give your soft tissues a bit of a break and to help them rebalance themselves. And then what's really important is how they choose to spend their day, right? Which is how do they walk? How do they stand? How do they sit? How do they lie down? Because that's what we do throughout the entire day. So a bit like functional movement or training Mm. in the same way, just watching and being aware of their posture wearing flat shoes versus wearing heels, Mm. how they carry their toddlers, are they hip carrying, little things like that is going to affect their soft tissues. So once we have learned that and they got that as a basis for their pregnancy routine, the next thing we want to teach them is how to move their bodies during labor. So often you'll find that there's a trend to say trust birth, trust this mother to know exactly what to do. And I'm all in for that. The problem is women have lost the the wisdom (laughs) of trust. You know, they don't know because their mothers don't do it. Their sisters don't do it. Their grandmothers may or may not have done it Mm. kind of thing. So as much as we want to trust the body, the innate wisdom has been lost through the years so it's something where you kind of need to re-educate them again so when you look at animals in the wild versus animals in captivity it's similar to that right babies don't go take antenatal classes animals don't go take antenatal classes every time you see an intervention with animals the intervention happens mostly when they are in captivity so i remember i was teaching um an Israeli farmer who lives in Singapore, but he, he raises uh, champion uh, horses in Israel, right? And he was sharing a story. When he heard this story, he got really frustrated because he's like, I was waiting for my champion horse to give birth. And I was sitting there in the stable just waiting and waiting. And I was there the entire day and this horse was still in labor. And finally, I had no choice but to run back to the house to have a pee. And when I came back, the horse game. <laughs> you know, and he totally got it, right? And he's like, I've been there the whole day. <laughs> so it's, it's, we don't have that anymore. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like 
same thing with the need to teach antenatal classes. You also actually need to teach women movement. Yes. And one of the things that, that really I see the most, right? So a common position that women like to take is being on all fours. So during labor, whether they're on the ball or whatever it is, that, and then they're laboring, and they're still in early labor or in active labor, and they're on all fours. And at some point, they get tired. So they end up sitting this way, which is still seen as all fours, and mm. then they're laboring this way. Now, the moment a woman is in this position where her knees are higher than her hips, it doesn't look like it that way, but if I, I change it to a squat, it is the same as a squat where the knees yes. are higher than the hip. So in the same way where she's kneeling, her knees are still higher than the hip. The moment the knee is higher than the hip, what happens to the pelvis is the tailbone will open. Yes. Which is great if the baby's head is low and you're pushing. But this is a common position that you see with women when they're in early labor or in active labor. So, because they're taking a break from being on all fours. But the moment they're in this position, they're closing the space on top and opening the space at the bottom when they actually need to open the space on top mm. and close the space at the bottom to create space. So women don't know this. A lot of care providers don't know this. And they just go, it's okay, follow your body, do what you feel like doing. Yeah. And yeah. that's where I go like, oh, no, I mean, yes, I'm all for following your body, but women don't mind tips and tricks mm. through labor to help labor to progress. Nobody yeah. wants the wrong labor. Any tip or trick that would be helpful, you'll see that they might protest when you say it, but after they've given birth, they'll go, you know, that was really helpful because once he said that, I tried and I could feel okay. the difference kind of thing. So it's little things like that can really make a difference so the first thing we really want to work with women is to get the basics right and the basics is movement and to get their hot air balloon in dynamic equilibrium and watch the way they actually move and then once they've got that right and becomes a part of who they are through their pregnancy then we go into what we call pelvic mobility protocols where we teach them how to move so another common irk that usually happens right where we talk about the trust the body concept is when they're in labor they tend to rock. They tend to sway their hips and all that. But you notice they only do that when there are no contractions. Yes. yes. The thing yes. is you need the strength of the contraction to push the baby through. So if you have a woman doing hip circles, right, and then she's just doing hip circles like that, now in between contractions, it feels great because you're stretching your soft tissues and everything. Yeah. But if you are trying to help this head find its way and you want to use hip circles to do that, you have to use it when there's a contraction because you need yes. the force of the contraction to push the baby through. So you often see like the follow your body concept happens in between contractions. Then when a contraction comes, they freeze. Yeah. <laughs> they <just rock. laughs> like, um, the rocking helps, but the rocking will help so much more if you when can do it during contractions. But uh, again, it's like whatever that you choose to do during labor, my belief is it's really it's like training for a marathon. You cannot think about, is my cadence correct? Do my strides correct? Am I running how many cadence per kilometer and everything? You can't think about these things, right? Mm. They always tell endurance uh, athletes where don't wear new shoes, don't wear new socks, don't do anything new. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for the next race when you want to do something new. So in the same way, I was like, when I teach women, I go embody the experience. 
do it every day. Do your mm, rocking, front yes, and back, like yes. hip circles, small movements, big movements, whatever, until it becomes so natural to you that when labor starts, you don't have to think your yes. way. Only then, you know, you can feel your way through it when yes. it becomes a part of who you are. That's so exciting to hear that. That's what I've been teaching for the last five years consistently. You get women that are saying, it's always the same thing. Why do we have to do? Because I'm saying that when you get into your labor, you'll go, aha, this is what I've been training for my whole pregnancy is this whole movement. So yeah, Mm. thank you for that. Because it's not about strengthening muscles. It's about releasing, isn't it? Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or keeping it supple. That's right. Really keeping it supple so that they're able to open up when the need comes for it. So what would you say would be the best advice for a woman that's in that real prolonged labor situation? Um, usually we want to start with pregnancy, but not everyone will have the, the knowledge to be able to do that. So when I teach women to clock their training hours, it's really about clock having a pregnancy routine that consists of 15 minutes to an hour every day. So let's say if they're working and things, it could be like 15 minutes or half an hour from a Monday to Friday, but Saturday and Sundays, they got to go for their long run, right? (laughs) They got to clock an hour kind of thing. So in an ideal situation, um, we have women where they clock their hours every other day. And that's the drill I like to put them through. But having said that, you can work with women that you have never seen before and still have fantastic results. Um, the, the most effective exercise, because what exercise to do would be dependent on what the issue is. So there is no magic exercise, right? If it's a pelvic floor issue, she's stuck between 7 to 10 cm, then pelvic sideline release is a wonderful exercise to do if she can even do it. It's not an easy exercise to do through mm. contractions. Right. So, so there's no right exercise. It is understanding what we assume the issue is that's causing Mm. labor not to progress and looking at the entire thing of labor, right? So one of the things that I teach um, during the workshops is the four Ps of labor. Now, everyone knows the three Ps, four Ps, five Ps, right? P for pelvis, P for power, uh, contractions, P for passenger, which is baby. And then you need like at least three Ps for labor to progress. We add the fourth P in, in a place like Australia, fourth P is your psyche, which is really important. So you have to look at the four Ps and kind of go, which P is malfunctioning? Yeah. Or which P that's, you know, it not, OMP is not the magic to everything. It could be psyche, right? This is where hypnosis comes in and things. Yes. It could be physical. It could be the nature of the contraction. Uh, it could be the contractions need to be stronger, so we would align the body first with the to get a hot air balloon in dynamic equilibrium. Then we need to do things like acupuncture or acupressure or nipple stimulation to get the contractions to be stronger. So what you choose to use to help labor to progress should be dependent on what is actually the issue. But a lot of people want that magic potion, right? Like just show me what to do to get this labor to progress. I said, sure. But first you got to tell us what is the issue of why you think labor is not progressing before we can come up with a solution? And if you really don't know, then you got to run through the four Ps and kind of go like, right, in terms of psyche, what needs to happen? 
right? In terms of physical aspect, what needs to happen in terms of contractions, what actually needs to happen. Mm. So that, that is how I would answer yeah. And it that, seems to be um, that really like when women are birthing within a hospital setting, the solution, they're not looking at that, but the solution is we have to intervene. We have to get this, this you know, this baby out and only we can do that with syntocinin or forceps yeah, or, yeah. you know, vacuum or cesarean. So yeah. um, they're not looking at that first mm. as a problem solver I guess it's just then that's what we've kind of in our in our western society we've we have kind of handed ourselves over for the caregivers and I guess given them that permission to just do that to us rather than I guess trusting and knowing and but that's also I feel like it had we have lost that like you said you know trusting our bodies we have lost that because mm. over the last how many hundreds of years we have gone into a space where we are in a different environment where we are handing ourselves over to, to people who we feel know more about our bodies than we do yeah. and so you're right there has been a total loss of, of um I think we still have the instinct to birth but it's yeah the education is totally. so important yeah. and it's just something that you know we can keep kind of saying oh to women gosh. but they, they have to also take back their power Mm. and be able to want to learn, to want to be supported, to invite those of us who work with, with women in. And um, some, some women, I think the fear stops them from even doing that. But I, I do see that there is a huge change. There is yeah, a huge is a shift change. happening. You know, I, there's a, there is this conscious awakening, I feel, that there is happening at the moment with women actually really coming back to going, I know, because it happened with me. It happened with me when I was pregnant and I only knew of cesarean birth. That's how I was brought into the world um, or induction or, or pain, you know, epidural. And, but there was this internal voice screaming at me saying, there has to be a better way. Mm. And so there was that instinctual voice and I'm so glad I listened to it and I, I had to educate myself Mm. by doing hypnobirthing and that was the beginning but I'm but then I wasn't taught all of what you teach with my uh, son and so I was in the relaxation meditation but I took myself to bed and I laid down for all of my labor (laughs) and that and I had a 36 hour labor and now I kind of understand why my son was also on the right as well and and when I was at your workshop you talked about that dextro rotation um, too which I was like oh god it all makes sense it all makes sense but I was like, I've got everything, I can meditate, I can bring myself calm and I had no fear, but I wasn't working with my body. Um, And look, that's when then for my second birth, um, I'd learnt so much more and I did that when you were talking about the movement during um, our surges and I was continually rocking and doing um, and you can see it on my birth video that I, I've shared on my website. And I remember having this one surge and I used the breathing as well, like the breath mm-hmm. as an energy. And I felt my daughter drop further into my pelvis. And I came out of that surge. I was like, that was a good one. That was like <laughs> that. I felt that, but it wasn't painful. It wasn't Yeah, I could could feel the space I I was making. I could feel she was moving. I could feel we were working together. And from start to finish, from first surge or first contraction, it was under six hours. And it was such a beautiful 
progression and mm. it, it wasn't too fast. It wasn't too slow. I just was so in, in it. In it. Yeah. And, but it, it, it didn't come with doing my own research and doing the practice as well. Absolutely. Mm. I love that. I love all the points you've come today, especially the keyhole, the pelvises. And that's what I've learned from my own journey as well, is that my pelvis didn't have the, the same anatomy as maybe other people's pelvises. So the, the hypertonic pelvic floor issues, yes. you know, so many things. Like we could talk about these things for hours, mm. but <laughs> it's so good that you brought that up because I think that everyone just assumes that everyone's pelvises are the same and yeah. that just some women are lucky well, actually, this education is just super on point for women to understand that they've got to really take the power back for themselves. So yeah. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for some of those golden nuggets I today. <laughs> I think we'll definitely have to have you on yes. in a future episode to talk more. <laughs> but um, uh, can women work with you online yet? I, um, how, how can women learn more from you? I yeah. think that's what we're really wanting to ask because... Okay. We have quite a number of OMP ambassadors and OMP ambassadors in Australia are people who have actually attended the workshop. So they do I'm one. I'm, that's me. <laughs> I'm going to be saying. Um, we will be launching OMP for parents very shortly uh, when the last bits and pieces. So I think over the next two weeks, we it's ready for launch finally. Uh, it's been a big piece of work yeah. together with our antenatal program. So it, it can be taken as a standalone, just OMP for parents. Because the question that the ambassadors always ask is, how do you teach it to parents? Because I teach yeah. a full-day workshop for professionals, right? And I'm like, that's easy. But easy because it's the language that I speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, everything just makes sense to me. But um, yeah, so that'll be available. And then soon we will be launching the OMP educators online that will be in the second half of the year. And then we're hoping right. to train people to be able to teach other people. Can't but wait. to the ambassadors first and, and they can always come to our Optimal Maternal Positioning website. Um, we get a lot of parents taking the professional courses anyway. They find it very helpful. It's just a matter of whether they want to sit through an eight-hour workshop and we're going through through the whole year the project for the whole year is to go through a revamp um so in the next few months there will be a lot more coming up oh, the, the challenge uh, or the beauty is because I don't just teach I attend births as well I, I run a birth house and things like that so I'm not um completely focused 100% on churning out a project it's always a juggling thing so it takes a <laughs> long time like people are like, you've been working at it for a long time. I said, yeah, because I don't work at it like 24 hours a day. I, I do other things. Like I go to clinic. I, you know, attend births. I <laughs> kind of stuff in between. Well, so, you've definitely inspired, I know, so many of us. Yes. And you know, I guess as a as fellow, you know, birth professionals, we want to thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah. You're just helping us understand more how we can share this this information I think that's what's so important Mm. it's about sharing it it's not that and that's what I love about your philosophy as well like you're here to share you're a change maker you're definitely here at this time for a reason and we would just want to thank you for also taking the time today I know you've got a woman in labor possibly upstairs (laughs) so we just want to thank you so much Ginny for coming on to our podcast Mm. and we'd love to invite you on on a future episode and just talk more (laughs) but um yeah thank you so much for your time today
Thank you so much for having me and would love to come back anytime. We can't wait to be back in Australia as well. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you. We hope this episode has helped you on your own journey. We would love it if you can subscribe and leave a review and help us to spread the word of positive pregnancy and birth. We would like to personally invite you to join our Nurture Hub online community where you can connect with other women and be mentored by us one-on-one in one of our future episodes. It's so important to feel connected and nurtured through this time and we would love to support you. Thanks for listening.